1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Amen. Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? You good? I feel like... um uh, whether it's the back to school, getting your kids up again thing, for those of you who are parents, kind of tired you out a little bit. Maybe it's the, the smoke and the ash in the air. But uh, yeah, we, we need uh, the, the Holy Spirit's energy in our lives. Amen. <laughs> I feel that way. Um, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. And as a church, we really value the, the Word of God, the written Word of God, the Scriptures. We don't believe that this is just some book of rules to follow. We believe that God has actually made himself known in these pages. The Bible claims to be living and active. And so when we open the Bible, when we read the Bible, when we read it out loud, when we teach from it, uh, we can actually encounter the God who lives. And one of the things we absolutely love to do is we love to go through books of the Bible. And currently we are going through the often neglected and often misunderstood book of Leviticus. And we are in Leviticus chapter 18. And just kind of by way of pre-comment here, uh, we, we've transitioned in the section of Leviticus. The, the whole first part of Leviticus was all about God's holiness at the tabernacle. There's priests, there's sacrifices, there's ritual purity, and God invites his people to come close to him because how many of you know God wants to be in relationship with his people? And that's the whole point of that first part of Leviticus. But now we've turned a corner into what many Bible scholars call the holiness code, where God's holiness is now bursting out of the tabernacle and going out into every realm, every sphere, every aspect of life that God's people would be set apart and distinct. And today, in Leviticus chapter 18, we encounter a rather frank discussion about sexual behaviors, and God is teaching in this section the way that he wants his holy, set-apart, unique, distinct people to glorify God with their bodies. And we even heard themes of that in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 6, which is a New Testament passage, but I asked Andrea to read that instead of Leviticus 18, because Leviticus 18 is, as Bible scholars say, Super awkward. So pray for me. I'm going to pray for our time, and we're going to just dive right in. And I apologize to the people running the clock in the balcony right now. I'm going to go long. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. Uh, We admit, Lord, that uh, in many ways, a subject like this of sexuality would just be easier to avoid, uh, not only because of the discomfort or the feelings of shame associated with it for some, but also, Lord, because of just the volume or, or the temperature of such conversations in our society. 
But Lord, we trust that your word is given to us for our good. We trust that you love us, you care for us, and you only want good for us. And so, Lord, for me, would you help me to deliver uh, the teaching that you've put in my heart um, with truth, with passion, with compassion. And Lord, I ask and pray for each and every single one of us that we would bring our hearts before you, our bodies before you, and our minds before you, Lord Jesus, that we would receive what it is you have for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So there are three very common mistakes that in my experience churches can fall into when it comes to discussing or teaching about sexuality. Three common mistakes. The first one is simply avoidance. Just avoid it. Don't talk about it. Uh, uh, just a quick show of hands. How many of you are like, yeah, talking about such matters so frankly in a public setting like this is a little bit awkward. Anybody kind of feel that way? All right, good. That's one mistake. But the Bible deals with these things very frankly, and so we would be unwise to ignore not only what the Scripture teaches, but the fact that the Scripture teaches these things rather frankly. So avoidance is one thing we want to uh, avoid. A second mistake that some churches sadly can fall into is that of acceptance, meaning just an acceptance of whatever the broader cultural trends are. You're going to see this in our passage in just a minute, but the Lord says, no, no, my people are going to be different. My people are going to be distinct. You're not going to do it the way that the rest of the world does it. So there's avoidance, There's acceptance. And the third mistake, which also starts with the letter A, is a myopic hyperfocus on prohibitions that lead to a distorted view of sexuality, the rejection of the goodness of this aspect of God's creation, harsh treatment of those who fall short, and crushing internal shame for the sinner. I did it, okay? I was trying to, basically what I'm trying to say is only focus on the negative. But I couldn't think of a word that started with A to round it out. So I just... I just followed my heart with that, okay? Some churches, some Christians only focus on the negative. It's this very myopic view. It's this very hyper-focused view. It's saying, here's the do's and the don'ts, and that's all we think about. And I had a, uh, sadly, just the, the history of Christian interpretation has even led some to reject the goodness of human sexuality as a creation from God. They've attributed it to the fall of man. In fact, some Christian interpreters in, in ages past have even said the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden was sex. And frankly, that's just wrong. That's a wrong way to view the scriptures. Now, here, here's another, here's an analogy that came to me this week. You guys ever seen these uh, Russian nesting dolls? Um, what happens sometimes with sexuality is it's like, you know, the, the, the prohibitions, a passage like Leviticus 18 is in fact part of the story, is in fact in the scriptures, but it's like one smaller part that's wrapped up in a larger story. So, so here's the prohibitions. There's like a fuller picture, right? There, there's, there's the prohibitions, but the prohibitions are given because, and I'm just going to kind of give you the overview of where I'm going today, this fuller picture here, but there's the prohibitions. That'd be kind of like the bottom layer, like layer number five, the base layer, but those are actually embedded within an idea that we are fallen from where we ought to be, where we're, we're sinful and our minds and our thoughts are darkened, but that is actually embedded into a, a larger portion of the discussion, which is God actually created sexuality and is a gift for us, and that's actually part of another layer of the story where it's, it's, it's uh, God ordering creation the way that he wants it to be ordered and created, and all of that, oh, I'm going to spill these here, all of that is wrapped up in the largest story, the biggest story, which is God loves his people that he created. 
And what happens is, both for Christians or non-Christians, they say, oh, look at all the do's and don'ts. Look at all the what you can do, what you can't do. And, and non-Christians say, oh, you Christians are judgmental or hyper-focused or, or narrow-minded. Or sometimes Christians will be like, oh, it's just all about keeping the rules and doing the right thing and not doing this and, and not doing that. And I'm trying to tell you, yes, the prohibitions are in the Bible, but they are part of a much larger story. And so while I will be addressing Leviticus 18 today, I am going to be doing some of this bigger picture, larger picture, biblical theology to paint for you the narrative of the scripture so that we can put the prohibitions in their right place. You with me? Okay, layer five. Let's just go for it. Whether you're with me or not, here we go. Layer five, the prohibitions. There are prohibitions given around sexuality. And I should say that every single human society in the history of the world puts boundaries around what is acceptable sexual behavior and what is not acceptable sexual behavior. We have seemingly in our culture reduced it to two. Be 18 years old and consent. That's about it. And maybe not even the 18 years old thing. That's really the only prohibitions that are are largely left in our society. But see, when God saved his people Israel out of Egypt, he he said, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be distinct. Look at Leviticus 18, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh and I'm your God. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live. And also, don't follow the practices of the land of Canaan where you're about to live. Both your past and and your future residences are filled with people that don't think about these sexual practices the way that I do, God's saying to them. He says, you are to instead practice my ordinances. You're to keep my statutes by following them. Remember, why? Because I am Yahweh, your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. So I just want to pause for a brief moment and remind you that anywhere that the Lord would put a boundary, whether it's sexual behavior or any other thing, the Lord's boundaries are that we might live, that we might experience his life. God is not a killjoy. God is not a uh, just bored thinking up rules to ruin our lives. For any of you who are parents or maybe even like a babysitter or something like that, you've heard your kids be like, you just don't want me to have any fun. It's like, man, that's the exact opposite. I want you to have the most fun. But riding your bicycle off of the roof into the hot tub is probably going to result in not fun, right? I mean, that does sound pretty dang fun if I say it song. So here are the prohibitions. Here are the things within that overarching principle of God says, I'm going to set you apart. You're going to live distinctly because I want you to live. Here's the list of the prohibitions. The first, and actually the majority of the material in this passage is uh, related to not sleeping with close relatives. By the way, um, these prohibitions are repeated in Leviticus chapter 20 as well. So in 18 and in 20, there's a lot of shared material. You can go read both chapters. When we get to Leviticus chapter 20, we won't refocus on this. We're going to 
focus on a kind of a different aspect in Leviticus chapter 20, but close relatives. This is the most of Leviticus 18 says things like, you are not to come near any close relative for sexual intimacy. You are not to violate the intimacy that belongs to your father and mother. She is your mother. You must not have sexual intercourse with her. You are not to have sex with your father's wife. She is your father's family. You are not to have sexual intercourse with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's. And it just goes on and on and on and on like this. Now, question. 3,500 years ago, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the number one category of sexual prohibitions that is dealt with is what we would categorize as incest. Why? Why would this take up the majority of the ink? Because this is the big deal of their day. So while we in our society might not deal with this one as much, if there's various um, sexual urges and desires that fall outside of the bounds of what God's good creation is, for them and their culture, the relative's desire knob was turned up. For us, we have other ones in our culture. Uh, and, and by the way, nowhere in here is the rationale of like genetic abnormality given. First of all, they didn't know about genetics 3,500 years ago. But second of all, there's even certain relationships like a stepmother or a, um, a aunt by marriage has nothing to do with genetics, has nothing to do with anything like that. It has to do with rightly ordered relationships. Who do these people belong to? That's the rationale. There's a prohibition against polygamy or at least a form of it. Um, some people see the Bible as, uh, particularly the Old Testament, as more accepting of polygamy. Uh, I do think that there is in the Old Testament some accommodation for being married to multiple people, but I also think that when you look out and zoom out at the bigger picture, as we're going to continue to do, uh, that it is not God's plan for a person to have multiple partners. Uh, it is God's plan for one man and one woman to be joined together in marriage for life. Uh, in these verses, specifically, it prohibits no marrying a mom and her daughter and no marrying rival sisters. You can't marry two sisters. Number three, uh, sex during menstruation is prohibited. And the phrase there in the Hebrew explicitly is uh, to uncover the source of blood. And you guys know that if you've been with us throughout Leviticus, I just keep feeling like the room just keeps getting tenser and tenser. I love this. this it's actually kind of delightful for me here. Um, the, the, the sacredness of blood, you might remember this. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. And in particular, some scholars see a connection to the idea of if, if the men, the male reproductive uh, fluid is referred to as seed, and, and the womb of a woman is referred to almost like the ground that grows the fruit that comes from that seed. Some scholars see a parallel to the, the jubilees where you just, you let the land rest. It's like, hey, it's like, take a break, okay? Uh, take a break. And, and the guy's like, well, why? He's like, just take a break. You'll, you'll, you'll be fine, buddy. She feels terrible already anyway, so you're going to be okay, right? But during menstruation, uh, sex is prohibited. Also, I should mention that Leviticus 15.24, which we talked about a while ago, addresses the accidental touching of blood. If a husband and wife are having sex and that happens to be right when she starts her monthly flow, then that's okay. There's a, a ritual to go through. Number four, adultery is prohibited. No being intimate with someone else's wife or husband. They don't belong to you. They belong to someone else. 
Uh, interestingly enough, child sacrifice is mentioned right here in the middle of this as well. And we will address uh, Molech and Molech worship and child sacrifice again in a little bit more uh, direct uh, more direct way in a few weeks, but there is a tie between sexuality and idolatry. Even as Tim was leading us, that idolatry is taking something that's good and turning it into a, a God-level sort of thing. Uh, the hotly contested verses in our culture, is, uh, the prohibition against homosexuality, you can see that in 18.22, as well as is repeated in 20, verse 13. And here it only addresses men. It specifically says for men to not lie with other men as they would lie with a woman. Uh, and scholars go back and forth. Well, does that mean that uh, female same-sex activity would be okay? Or does it just mean that it's far more common to find men acting out in this sort of a way. Uh, I think that Paul addresses that when he gets to Romans chapter one because he does include both men and women same-sex behavior, but it's right here in Leviticus 18. And then it wraps up with the uh, the a particular one that I think uh, obviously in our culture we don't even like to think about necessarily, but bestiality, sleeping, uh, having sexual contact with an animal uh, in both chapter 18 and again in chapter 20. Now, that's the list. Those are the things that are sexually off limits, the Lord says. Now, I want to address a few objections as we go along. And right out of the gate, there are, there's one objection where people would say, but people in the Bible did some of these things. Uh, it's true. Sarah and Abraham, father Abraham and Sarah were half brother and sister. You can read that in Genesis chapter 20. Uh, his grandson, Jacob, married rival sisters, Rachel and Leah. And, and Reuben, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, actually slept with his father's wife, not his mother or her concubine, maybe, depending on how it's translated. So not his own mother, but essentially one of his father's additional extra wives. So the response to that objection is, yep, it's totally true. Those things absolutely did happen. But remember, stories that are told do not equal prescriptions to follow. Just because someone did something in the Bible doesn't mean that you should do it as well. You know, well, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Therefore, go and do likewise. Like, what? Come on. Like, read your Bible. And by the way, read your Bible. Because if you read the stories and you see these objections, like, yeah, Abraham did this. How did it turn out for him and Sarah? Did they have, um, how you could say, problems in their marriage? The answer is yes. Go read Genesis. How did, how did Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel turn out? How did that go for him? Hint, not good. What if Leviticus was a commentary on Genesis saying, hey, let's not do stupid things again? Just a suggestion. Another objection might come here, though. So, hey, Aaron, we're dealing with Leviticus. We're dealing with Old, Old Testament stuff. Aren't things different now from Old Testament times? Like, as we've gone along, that's another objection. Like, we don't do the blood sacrifices anymore. We don't have a Levitical priesthood. We don't have a tabernacle or a temple that we come to. There's a lot that's different. So maybe this was true for them back then, but now there's a new standard or a new code of conduct, and we don't have to worry about these things as much anymore. Uh, the response to that objection is that, yes, some things things are different, but other things are not different. And part of being wise about how to read the scriptures is knowing where there's continuity and where there's discontinuity. All the way, if we can just pause for a minute, Leviticus, fast forward all the way to Acts chapter 15. 
Remember, there's all these non-Jewish people who want to start following Jesus, the Messiah. And people are asking these questions like, well, well, we're all Jewish. Every, all of Jesus was Jewish. Jesus still is Jewish. Uh, all the disciples, Jewish. All the first followers of Jesus, Jewish. They all read Leviticus. They all obeyed Torah. They all kept kosher. They all kept the Sabbath. But now there's all these like, you know, pagan godless Gentiles who want to start following Jesus as the Messiah. And they ask the question, how Jewish do they have to be? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to eat kosher? They convened a council in Acts chapter 15. You can read about it. James stands up and he says, look, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them. We're going to give them just four laws, essentially. They need to abstain from things polluted by idols. So no idol worship. That's a good one. Just worship the one true God. Uh, From sexual immorality, which in the Greek, it's the word porneia, and it's this very broad term that just encompasses everything that we just read about in Leviticus 18. From eating anything that's been strangled and from blood. So the same blood sort of rules would apply to us. So for those of you who are not Jewish, you are not obligated to the Torah in the same way that the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham are. But the council said, here's the big four. And guess what made the list? Sexual immorality. And the the authors of the New Testament, from Paul to James to Peter to John, they all write concerning the way that we use our bodies and we use our sexuality in in a way that is absolutely in line with the teaching of the Old Testament. So from a biblical perspective, this is one of those areas of continuity. Which leads me to a third objection right out of the gate, which is, okay, but that was then and this is now. Like, whatever the Bible says, sure, okay, maybe the Bible says that, but it's also old, it's also ancient, they thought about things differently, they didn't understand things the way that, that we did, they didn't know things like maybe a, a loving, committed, same-sex union, they didn't know about things like, you know, uh, um, you know, being polyamorous, and that's a, that's a new one that, the, that is actually gaining in widespread acceptance, polyamory. I read a, a Gallup poll this last week that from, I think it was from 2004 to 2020, um, public opinion was 4% approving of polyamory in 2004. Only 4% of American society approved. And the number is now 20% approved. So in a little, you know, decade and a half or so, culture has shifted. So, you know, we just, we think about these things different. And we, we think about things, you know, uh, it's, we're more sophisticated than they were. My objection or my response to that would be, well, then which culture gets to decide? Every culture draws boundaries and draws lines in different places. There are some cultures where they would be uh, uh, much more accepting of the incestuous type of things. The, The biblical culture, and even in certain places to this day, where it might be more acceptable to marry a cousin or marry a, a, a closer relative. So it just becomes a game of whoever's in power gets to make the rules. Which culture gets to decide? There's a, there's a scholar, he's not a Christian, an author and a scholar, uh, named uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt, and he used the language of moral taste buds in one of his books that he wrote. And he talked about how every peop- all people have different kind of taste buds. You know how some people, certain foods taste good or certain foods taste bad. And so he kind of likens that to morality where in different culture, different people, certain things feel right or feel wrong to different people. Uh, and he says, you know, the, the moral taste buds, yeah, we can fight about these things because we have different moral taste buds. Well, the question would be that I would want to ask is, What if something's poisonous, but you've developed a taste for it? Which culture gets to decide? And as followers of Jesus, we say we want to look to 
God, the one who created us, to decide what things are in bounds, what things are out of bounds. Some things we might feel more comfortable with, but that doesn't mean that our moral taste buds are always right, which leads me to the fourth layer, layer number four. The prohibitions are embedded in layer number four, which is our fallenness. That the Bible tells a story of God creating humanity and creating the heavens and the earth and creating all things good, but that mankind chose to rebel against God and say, we want to live life on our own terms. And because of that, all of humanity has been affected by what we call the fall. And there's a, there's a theological term that sometimes gets misunderstood, but I think it's helpful if you understand it rightly. The theological term is the term total depravity. If you don't believe in total depravity... Go to the airport when the computer systems are down. I've been there. It is hell. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Total depravity does mean every person has been affected in every aspect of your being by sin and by the fall. The Apostle Paul writes about it like in Ephesians 4 where he talks about their their minds have been darkened, their, their hearts have become hard. They're, they've become callous and they give their bodies over to every type of promiscuous sexual practice. So we have to understand that we are fallen. The prohibition, we wouldn't need those layer five prohibitions if we had not fallen. Which helps us answer yet another objection, which is how could something be wrong if it feels right? Uh, I, made the, I made the mention of... Um, just the real trial I've been going through lately, uh, my wife deciding to do something called Ryan Gosling September. And uh, so I, I've made it for 18 years without ever having to watch the movie The Notebook, but I had to watch it recently. And that whole thing about like uh, the, the love, well, not really love triangle, but like, oh, I love you, I don't love you, and now I love this other person, I'm gonna leave you and go back to the other person. We were talking about it, just analyzing it because nerds. And uh, my wife and I was just like, man, that, that one second... A boyfriend guy that was going to marry the girl. I don't remember people's names. I'm, if they're not named Aaron, like my wife, I can't remember their name. But um, just this whole way, like that, that movie, but so many movies are just like, well, I just had to follow my heart. I just had to go with my heart. And the response to that is, yeah, but your, your heart has been affected by the fall. Your thoughts, your thoughts have been affected by the fall. Your, your very desires, even within your body, have been affected by the fall. The Bible teaches that things are not as they ought to be, and we need to have a little bit of a healthy suspicion and skepticism about just what comes out of us most naturally. Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, hey, you know, the heart, pretty, pretty deceitful untrustworthy above all things. You might want to be a little bit skeptical. Your mind, you need to say, like, am, I, am I thinking clearly about this, right? Like, like, gluttony feels really good in the moment. But if you were to back out and think about it, it's the desires of the body leading you to something that actually in the end is not healthy for you. Maybe one act of gluttony won't kill you, but a lifestyle will. It's not good for you. Our desires are out of order. I always remember there's a famous illustration that C.S. Lewis gave 
In his book, Mere Christianity, he goes, he was talking about our sexuality in, in Western culture. And this is, you know, what, 67, well, no, 80 years ago he was writing this. He says, our desires are out of order. He says, try it with a different desire. He says, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out uh, 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 that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And he likens that to our practices and our habits around sexuality, that our appetites are disordered. But the disorderedness and the fallenness is not the end of the story because that's embedded within another layer of the fact that God actually created sex. It's his idea. It's his design. And I would just simply say that human sexuality does not belong to fallenness, but to God's good design. This is, again, when we hyper-focus on the prohibitions or we hyper-focus on the fallenness, we miss out on the beauty and the goodness of what God intended this gift for. Now, I would just boil it down to two simple words, procreation and pleasure. Procreation in Genesis 1.28, we're, we're talking right out of the gate. God says to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is before the fall. Fill the earth, multiply. Um, I ran into some friends yesterday at a store, I ran into the wife, and uh, she is currently pregnant with their sixth child. And I asked her there in the story, I said, you do, you do know how this keeps happening, right? And we had a nice chuckle about it, and ha, ah, ha, you're such a hilarious person, Aaron. But right here, like the be fruitful and multiply command is not even like a subtle, you know, whatever. It's literally talking about to the man and the woman, get busy. And I find it remarkable that this act of procreation is paired with the most pleasurable, enjoyable experience that a human being can have. And the Bible is filled with verses that talk about delighting in the, the pleasure and the enjoyment of sex. I just give you two, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. These are the ones that like, you know, boys, when they're reading through the book of Proverbs as like a, as like a middle schooler, they find this and they chuckle, right? It's the, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Or the Song of Songs, which is attributed to Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, says, eat and be drunk with love. How remarkable is it that the creator of the universe says, I'm going to make the act that results in new human life be the most enjoyable, uh, life-giving, fulfilling thing that human beings can do. That is our God. That is our God. It is not by accident. It is by his design. But it's dynamite. It's, it's fire. It's a, uh, fire is a really good thing. I've used this analogy before. Yesterday, I, I smoked a tri-tip 
And then the night before, or two nights before that, we lit a campfire and the kids, we made s'mores for like a back to school treat, like fire when used properly. Oh my goodness. But fire, when it's like on your couch, not so good. God says, I'm giving this incredibly potent creation, this gift to you, but it exists within another layer, which is an ordered creation. I've created the world. I've set it up in such a way that there is order to things. It's interesting to think about rightly ordered sexuality taking place in a context of rightly ordered relationship. You know, if you go, go back to the beginning, go back to Genesis chapter 1, a lot of the language of Genesis 1 isn't actually creating, but actually separating. God separated the day from the night. God separated the dry land from the water. God separated the, the waters above from the seas below. God created and he, he ordered and he separated the birds in the air and the fish that swim in the sea. And there's a distinguishing between the animals that walk on the land versus those things that crawl and slither on the land. That everything is God saying, day, night, dry land, water, sky, ocean, male, female. There's this distinguishing, there's this ordering, there's this, there's this putting things into their right context and in their right place. And for many years, people have noticed that when it comes to Leviticus, the work of the priests is that same sort of divine ordering. We saw it back in Leviticus chapter 10 where the priests are given an instruction where it says you must distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, and you must teach the Israelites all the statutes that the Lord has given to them through Moses. There's, there's even stuff about the priests. They, they're to separate the, the fatty lobe from the kidney and they're to separate the fat from the meat. There's all this separating and there's all this ordering because why? God created a world where there is right and fitting and proper order to things. Genesis chapter one, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. That the ordering that God gives to his creation is that a man and a woman would be joined together in the covenant of marriage and that that is the context where sexuality will take place. Genesis chapter two, chapter later, this is why a man leaves his father and mother leaves his close family, leaves those close relatives, bonds with his, with his wife, unites with his wife, and the two become one flesh. There's a physical union there, but there's also a spiritual and an emotional union there as well. Now, some people would say, well, the, you know, particularly in our culture as the, the, um, the prohibited activity around homosexuality is the one that is more current in our day. People would say things like, well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Sure, it's in Leviticus, but Jesus didn't. But remember, Jesus in Mark chapter 10 affirmed the Torah. He affirmed all that, that Moses wrote. And he's arguing with the scholars here. And he says, remember that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is affirming the Torah of Moses, which includes not only Genesis 1, but also Leviticus 18, because it's a unified whole. So Jesus is saying that in the order that God has created for things, 
Sexuality, this potent, potent gift, is given to humanity to be enjoyed in the relationship between a husband and a wife. But even that isn't the end of the story because this rightly ordered design is embedded in the biggest layer, which is God's love for humanity. You know, there's a lot of metaphors and images for mankind's relationship with God. He's obviously our creator, so there's a creator creation, like a, like a potter in a, in, a, in, a, in a jar. There's the analogy of a king. He's a king. He owns everything. He's the ruler. He's the Lord. He's the master. Uh, Jesus is like a brother or like a friend. There's lots of different ways that we relate to God, but one of the most fundamental and foundational metaphors that the Bible uses for humankind's relationship with God is that of a wife to a husband. Isaiah chapter 54, we read this in our call to worship. It says, indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth, that God wanted humanity to relate to him the way that a wife would relate to a husband. And and when humanity fell, he chose his people Israel and he specifically said, Israel, you will be uh, my people. It's all this language of covenant. I will make a covenant with you. It's It's like a marriage covenant. It's like a marriage relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your husband, you will be my wife. But the sad history of the story of the Hebrew scriptures is unfaithfulness. You can see it like in the prophet Hosea where God tells this prophet, Hosea, go marry an unfaithful bride and she's gonna continue to cheat on you and you're gonna know the kind of heartbreak that I have known. But in Hosea chapter two, God says, I'm not gonna let it be the end of the story. God says, I'm gonna persuade her. I'm gonna lead her out into the the wilderness. Oh, what does that sound like? Like Leviticus, doesn't it? I'm gonna, or maybe later on the exile, I'm gonna lead her out. We're kind of strip away all the other stuff and I'm gonna speak tenderly to her. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. You will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal for I'm gonna remove all those idols, the names from her mouth and I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. And friends, all of this prophecy, all of this hope is ultimately fulfilled when God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, to die on a cross because of our unfaithfulness and to rise again to offer us new life. And the apostle Paul reflects on the work that Jesus did and said, you know what that was like? That was like a a husband loving his bride. And friends, Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his people the way that a husband loves his bride perfectly. And that is the highest layer, the the largest layer, the most cosmic layer of the story. So when we gather to church and we read a passage like Leviticus 18 that says, hey, here's some things that are off limits for you. We are not to just focus on the rules. We're to connect them to the God who loves us like a perfect husband loves an unfaithful wife. And the good news, friends, is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive all of our broken sexuality, all the ways that we've fallen short, all the ways that we've misused this good gift that God has given to us. And he rose again to offer us new life in him that we can be transformed in this life 
And when he returns, we will be ultimately transformed. And whatever, whatever the, you know, everything in earthly existence is pointing to something bigger, whatever the joy and the delight of the best sexual relationship between a husband and a wife will pale in comparison to whatever the joy that awaits us in eternity. I remember, um, I think it's C.S. Lewis also talks about like a little kid being like, if you try to compare, you know, sex to heaven or you try to talk about sex with a little kid, it's like, well, what about chocolate? Is there chocolate in sex? And it's like, well, no, not necessarily, but it's like, well, then I don't want to do it because I love chocolate, right? And he's like, trust me, sex is better, okay? By comparison, well, will there be, will there be sex in heaven? It's like, don't even worry about it. What we have awaiting us is better. Amen. It's all pointing to the kind of love that God has for humanity, so I've gone big picture here, okay? I've gone big picture. This is a, this is a thinking about the, the Bible in the context of the whole biblical storyline. If you're curious, we just did what's called biblical theology, just kind of sweeping up the whole storyline. And in the last couple of minutes that I don't have, because I've already gone long, I do want to bring it home to us as a church community. Uh, this, this subject is far too varied to get into every potential application. So the application point that I want for us today is I'm calling anyone here who calls Sound City Bible Church home, I want you to work with me and work with all of us as a church to help build a culture of holy sexuality. I'm going to give you five things that I mean by that, okay? The The first one I want to call us to is I want to call us to live set apart lives. Like God said to the children of Israel, he says the same thing to us who have been adopted into that family. You're to be holy because I am holy. I'm different. And so no apologies. We take sexual sin very seriously here. As we heard in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul says, you need to flee sexual immorality. So with no apologies... With no caveats, we want to be people of a high level of moral seriousness, okay? No excuse, well, what's the big deal? Oh, it's just this, it's just, well, everybody does it. No. Sexual activity is to take place in the context of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. And everything outside of that falls short and is playing with fire. It's taking fire out of the fireplace and setting it on your lap. And the Bible says, can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? And the answer is no. So we're calling everyone to a, a moral seriousness around this issue. At the same time, we're going to hold all five of these in tension. Number two, courageous honesty. You'll, you'll note, I didn't read a ton of verses actually from Leviticus 18. I summarized it all, but it's pretty blunt. It's pretty blatant. And friends, I am pleading with you to help us have a culture at Sound City where we can be pretty blunt. We can be pretty honest. I'm not interested in playing games when it comes to church. Let's just be real. I mean, okay, maybe in the foyer, like, hey, how's it going? Well, just really struggling with porn this week. Okay, practice discretion, okay? But in the right context, in the right trusted relationships, let's build those kind of relationships so that we can be courageous with our honesty with one another. Number three, also holding it at the same time, just tons and tons and tons of grace. 
There is not one person in this room who in your sexuality has lived up to the standard of God's moral perfection. So we will not pick up rocks and throw them at each other. We will call one another to a high standard and we will practice more and more and more grace when we stumble and fall. Well, Pastor Aaron, that sounds like two things that are really kind of opposite from each other that's going to be really hard to hold in tension. Thank you. Welcome to biblical Christianity. Number four, what I'm calling compassionate curiosity. What I mean by that is, hey, I want to explore in my own heart what's leading me to desire this this out-of-bounds sexuality. What's leading me down that path? What's, what is it that's within me that wants that? Or, or in somebody else, like, hey, what, let's, let's unpack this together because, because it always comes back to the human heart. It always comes back to some desire that we want. So compassionate curiosity. Hey, can we explore that? Will you help me explore that? And then lastly, number five, care for the wounded. So many people bear the scars on their soul of the disordered sexuality that we started with. I know so much of my time as a pastor, so much time for the, for the uh, like professional counselors and therapists that I know, so, so much time is spent caring for those who have experienced wounding because of disordered sexuality. And so I'm inviting all of us to work towards this sort of a culture. And it all starts with the receiving of grace from our Savior Jesus. So I'm going to transition as quickly here into communion. I'm going to invite the musicians to come join me up on stage here. I'm going to invite the communion servers to come get into place if they would, those of you who are serving communion at the Lord's table here. I would remind you that this meal is a place where we not only remember what Jesus has done for us, but we receive his grace and his forgiveness in a fresh way. So there's, again, this this subject matter is so broad. It touches on so many different aspects. The application points could be 5,000. I'm going to let you and the Holy Spirit of God do some work right now. Maybe for some of you, it's, hey, I need to repent of some of my uh, out-of-bounds sexual activities. I need to repent and be made right before God before coming and eating and drinking. Others of you, man, there's hurt and there's woundings from things that people sinned against you. You come to the table, you eat and you drink because the Lord has healing and has grace for you. And in all of this, let's pray that the Lord would nourish us to be the kind of people that can live out a holy, set-apart sexuality in a culture that doesn't honor the Lord the way that he calls us to. Just by way of practical reminder, I invite you to come down these aisles and return out the sides. The, the lighter area is uh, wine and the darker area is juice, depending on your conscience. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to invite you to uh, just pray with me, to bow your heads in prayer. And Lord, uh, I just invite you into this place right now. Wherever we, in our experience with sexuality, wherever we need to receive your grace, I ask and pray that you would help us to do that right here and right now. Lord, we want to be able to come to you 
with whether it's our brokenness or our wounding or our sinfulness and be met with your grace. So Lord, as we prepare to come forward for communion now, would you meet with us in the bread and in the wine to remind us of your body that was broken and your blood that was shed that we might be made whole. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.